Hi, you're listening to an older episode. The podcast is now called Travel Writing World. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to All Over the Place, a podcast on travel, culture, and the creative life. Today's episode brings us to Boston, where I speak with Susan Solomont about her new book, Lost and Found in Spain, Tales of an Ambassador's Wife. From 2010 to 2013, she served alongside her husband, Alan Salamont, in Madrid, where he was appointed as U.S. Ambassador to Spain and Andorra under President Barack Obama. And without further ado, I bring you Susan Salamont. I'm speaking with Susan Salamont about her new book, Lost and Found in Spain, Tales of an Ambassador's Wife, which was available now on Tuesday, March 26, 2019, if I'm not mistaken. It's an interesting book from an unusual perspective, and I would like to thank you for coming on the show with us. Well, thank you, Jeremy. It's really my pleasure to be here, and I am totally uh, excited about the launch of the book, and you're absolutely right. Lost and Found in Spain, Tales of an Ambassador's Wife was released on March 26, 2019, but it took far longer to write. (laughs) It's always the case, right? Always, it's always, it's never easy, as they say. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Sure, sure. Well, let me start by telling uh, your listeners uh, that I am, I'm speaking to you from Boston, Massachusetts, where I've lived for almost 40 years, although I'm a native New Yorker. And uh, I've led a wonderful life. I feel incredibly blessed by things that I've gotten to do in my life. And that was even before moving to Madrid, Spain in 2010. But in 2009, uh, my husband, who has been very active in many presidential campaigns, received a call from President Obama's office asking if we would be willing, well, they didn't ask if we, if he would be willing to serve as an ambassador to Spain and Andorra. And would that be something he was interested in? And my husband, Alan, knew that that wasn't just a he decision, but a we decision. Mm -hmm. And we were thrilled and excited and honored to be serving our country, serving President Obama, and getting to know Spain. So it's a little bit of the genesis of this. Uh, You know, I have had a career here in Boston. I've worked for public broadcasting for the Uh, WGBH, the television and radio station in Boston. I worked there for almost 20 years. And then I worked in the field of philanthropy, helping foundations give money away. And I had always done, been a professional, hardworking career woman up until we left for Spain in January 2010. Mm. So you were pretty active in the nonprofit world and the, I guess, the uh, civic world prior to going to Spain. Uh, Absolutely. I actually was very conscious that I wanted to have three things that I was involved in. And I I don't mean just three literal things, but I had three buckets that I really cared about. One was my professional career and putting energy and time into that. The second was 
civic life. I wanted to participate in my community, both locally and I would say nationally at that point. I don't think I was thinking globally. And then I wanted to um, also spend time with my family. I have a wonderful husband and my daughters who are now 33 and 27 uh, were much younger. It was, you know, mm-hmm. over 15, 20 years ago when I made this decision that I wanted to, um, those were the three places that I wanted to really devote my time and energy. And, and I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, well, I was, I felt very lucky to be able to do that. Uh, and then again, we'll get to it, but in 2010, it all changed. <laughs> it, it seems now that you, you mentioned these, uh, the three in the bucket idea, it seems that these three, uh, things that you point out are, you know, the, the three most important, I guess, running tensions throughout the story that you present to us in your book. Um, but before we, uh, we go there, I want to kind of talk about those because those are central threads to the, to the text, but, um, what compelled you to write about your experiences while you were in Spain? Uh, yes. So when we went to Spain, I knew that I wanted to keep in touch with friends and family at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, after about the third or fourth day, I started writing emails to all my good friends and to my parents and my sister and so forth. And every single email was exactly the same. And I went, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to do this much longer. Let me put them into one of those sort of e-newsletters that some people love to get, some people don't love to get, but they would work for me. And I started writing email newsletters that I entitled Ola, the Spanish word for hello. And my first hola went out to my 13 closest friends. And everybody wrote back, I love it. I feel like I'm living in Spain with you. How exciting, how wonderful. And I described the magic of everything we were getting to do. The second one, though, I started getting requests from friends of friends. Can I receive your hola? And so it went out to probably 20 or 30 people. And by the end of my time in Spain, I had written 34 Ola letters, and they had gone from the original 13, and they were then being sent out to over 3,000 people that I was sending them out to. They just went viral. People wanted to get my Ola letters. They were published on the embassy website in Madrid. They were published in Spanish and in English. I had... uh, friends that I did not know I had writing to me, telling me how much they were enjoying my letters. And when I returned to Boston uh, in the middle of 2013, three and a half years later, a dear friend of mine, a literary agent, encouraged me to put these into a book. Mm. But her advice to me was, Susan, a book of letters is not a book. A book needs an arc. Mm -hmm. It needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you need to be able to tell your story. And hence, the writing of Lost and Found in Spain began. And so were the original letters as, I guess, personal and intimate as the, I guess, the story in the book? Or did that change in in tone? Uh, It changed in time. Um, First of all... It's one of the things I'm most proud about the book is that I I think I was vulnerable. I showed my vulnerability Mm -hmm. in the writing of the book. By the time my Olas started going out to 150, 200, 300 people, I was less revealing. And I really talked more about what we were getting to do Mm -hmm. and the experiences we were having. I put in things like, I miss everybody, I'm lonely, 
I, um, you know, it's hard not to be thinking about what you're doing at home, sort of the homesickness that I do write about in the book. But I really kept them much more on a professional level, meaning here's the work we're getting to do. Here are the people we're meeting. Here are the places we're seeing. Here's where we're traveling to. So people lived the adventure and not so much lived what was going on inside of me, my vulnerability. Mm. And so a lot of that came out um, in the book for sure. And so I, I guess we can circle back now to those those three things. And I, I guess one of Maybe before that, even, you know, one of the central tensions that I read in in the book is that tension between or about being recognized as an individual, as a person, as a professional, as you say, and not just as somebody's wife tagging along. Right. Um, And I think that we see that at the beginning and, you know, towards the end as well. Do you recall anything about that uh, while you were there? Any of those frustrations Oh, yes. (laughs) More than you might want to hear and more that are even in the book. So uh, at the very beginning of the book, um, I talk about going to uh, our State Department's ambassador training school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a two-week program down in Washington. Uh, It's lovingly referred to as charm school. There's nothing (laughs) charming about it. You are in class from eight in the morning till six at night. You have a parade of uh, different people from the government coming in and you're taking fast and furious notes. And during that time, you get a binder And we had 12 ambassador designates in our class and all of their resumes and CVs were written up in there. And not one of the spouses was included. Not one. And it wasn't just women who were the spouse. So I don't want to make this be just a gender thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, The men and women who were spouses or partners were nowhere to be seen as if we didn't exist. (laughs) And so that was the first inkling. And if you can remember, Secretary of State at that time was Hillary Clinton, if not the most powerful woman in the world at the time, certainly one of the most powerful political spouses ever. I think she would have been mortified to know that our resumes were not included as if we had nothing to contribute. But I also was told that my work might be a conflict of interest and Mm -hmm. that I should not take it with me. When I arrived in Spain, I was okay. I let it go. Um, You know, I sort of said to myself, and my husband said to me, he's going to be traveling one day to Barcelona. And I'm going to say, oh, I can't go. I need to be on a conference call. So I realized that there were other opportunities that I could have while living in Spain without having my work and that I should embrace them. So I I did. And uh, that's part of the found part in Spain, the lost and found. That was Mm -hmm. the found part, was being able to embrace it. But I also wanted to have a meaningful role within the work that Alan was getting Mm -hmm. to do. I don't want to fool anyone and say I should have been the ambassador. I was not. But I wanted to play a meaningful part. And that took a lot of endurance, perseverance, and resilience on my part. Mm -hmm. Because uh, not everybody was just saying, oh, great, here she is. Let's use her. I thought I'd be swept up and embraced by everything everyone was doing. And instead, I had to slowly but surely carve a role for myself. And and what role or, I guess, professional initiatives uh, did you leave? What role did you carve out for yourself there? Uh, so it started, uh, it was a slow but sure process. Mm-hmm. 
And it started by my talking to everybody within the embassy community, sort of the department heads, the section heads, as they're known, to understand what their needs were. And so there's a commerce section, there's an economic section, a political section, a public affairs and public diplomacy and so forth. As I went around, I began hearing that there really wasn't a way that existed at that time for professional women in Spain, Spanish women, to come and meet with professional American women living in Spain, whether they be expatriates or whether they be part of the embassy community. And I started meeting with Spanish women and uh, companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Pfizer, Hewlett-Packard were all headed up by women, Spanish women living in Spain. Hmm. And And they said to me, we don't have a lot of networking opportunities. So I seized upon that and we're working with sections within the embassy. We're able to provide ways to bring professional Spanish and American women together to learn from each other, network with each other, expose them to what was going on at the embassy and create more cultural bridges and professional bridges. And by the end of my time in Spain, I had probably produced about 20 different events that brought Spanish and American women together that involved embassy sections and that also involved embassy families. And I got to do something really fun, Jeremy. I got to channel my inner Oprah Winfrey and interview everybody as I was doing this. And they developed a following. They were known as the Women's Leadership Series. And people, we'd have about 100 people at a time coming. And everybody loved them. And it became a way to really shine a light on what women were up to in Mm. Spain. That sounds uh, kind of like a a novel enterprise, especially in you know, the stereotypical idea of Spain that we have, I guess, no thanks to the legacy of Franco, right? That, that that Spain is in somewhat a conservative country, not a capital C, but lowercase c, conservative. Um, uh-huh. and, and all of the, the baggage that comes with that, especially, you know, the role of, of women within that society. So um, did you feel that there was any sort of resistance to this idea within Spain? Yeah, I, uh, no, I think I, I agree with your assessment of that, and I think that's very wise on your part to see it that way. But I think that in the 50 years since Franco passed away and democracy has come to Spain, women are bursting at the seams mm-hmm. to um, to thrive in the work that they do. And yes, there are some segments that are more traditional and, as you said, conservative with a small c, that, you know, it's still the golf course and it's, you know, a a men's game, you know, who, you know, the men's club type of thing. But I think that image was changing Mm -hmm. and women were, are really achieving great success there. I I had one experience where we went to what's called the Borso, the the Spanish Stock Exchange. Actually, the word means purse or pocketbook. (laughs) And uh, all the women that I was part of this women's leadership network that we formed, we got to ring the opening bell. You know, times are changing and women are really out there. Now, saying that as well, they're also the ones that go home and think about the dinner and think about what the kids are up to and is their homework and all those other things that we're all juggling in mm-hmm. life that, uh, you know, come into more stereotypical patterns. But women are really changing that and breaking all sorts of boundaries in Spain. 
you know, I was in Spain roughly around the same time as you, and I was doing doctoral research in the archives in Madrid and in Seville at that, you know, almost that exact same time. And I remember one of the things that that shocked me as an American living in Spain is how active Spanish people are in in, in civic life and, and, and in political life, right? There's marches and protests and, wow, it, 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 in some ways it's refreshing to see so many people care about what goes on in their society. And especially some of the women's marches. Um, I recall there was an unfortunate event. I don't remember exactly when it was, but um, there was a, a, a rape and women came out and shut down cities, right, with their marches, you know, desiring to be heard. And that was so nice to see. We don't, we don't see something, well, at least in Florida, we don't see that so much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm really sorry that you and I never met in person when we were there at the same time. That would have been <laughs> wonderful. Uh, and it would have been a great opportunity to even open the doors of the embassy, which a lot of people don't understand what really goes on within one and how important the work is. But once again, what you're saying is really accurate. It is a political country. People vote in higher numbers than other countries do. They vote on Sundays, by the way, mm. and it's considered your duty to vote. It's not just a right like a privilege, and which it is, but everybody votes, and uh, it, mm -hmm. it's very high turnout. Uh, you don't have the same kind of political advertising that you do here. There, there are banners that go up and down all the major boulevards with the candidates' names and photos on them. You know, and yes, there are interviews and things like that. And there are demonstrations and marches everywhere. Uh, we would we lived on a very uh, prominent boulevard in Madrid. And every week we would get a list of all the marches that would take place because they would march right past the home that we lived in our residence. And they'd go down to some of the famous plazas in in Madrid, Plaza Cidelis, uh, you know, the Gran mm -hmm. Via and so forth. And you'd hear them. And it could be everything from animal rights to women's rights to some process of the government, something about health care that was taking place. People were concerned and active and uh, they, they really took part in their in their civilization. And perhaps because for years they didn't under the Franco regimes, that they were much more active than what we have typically seen in the past year. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember, um, I guess it was 2011, the uh, Indignados movement really kind uh -huh. of popped off and they were occupying the Plaza del Sol, right? They literally squatted and turned that place into a camp <laughs> campground. That's right. That's and right. It, it was wild to see. I mean, yeah. It yeah. I took a walk gives me with goosebumps my, thinking about it. My dog Stella Blue and I, she and I walked all over Madrid. And one day I said, we're going to just take a walk over to Plaza Mayor and see what is going on. The, it was mm. the M15, the May 15th demonstrations. Right. And friends who were coming to visit used to write me and say, is it safe? Can I come? And I, and I wrote back and I said, oh, my gosh, it's safe and it's tranquil. And you went there. There was a poetry booth or there was the silent <laughs> tent or there was the right. signed petitions tent or the vegan cooking tent or whatever it might be. 
but it was as peaceful as could be, but wanting to make thoughts and opinions known to people, to the government and so forth, in what we all hope will be peaceful ways that can implement, that can help usher in change. Right, right. Yeah, in in, in Seville, they, um, they did something similar in one of the major plazas there, and I remember they had a a library (laughs) in the protest section. You can just, you know, take a book, leave a book. Um, They were having silent, uh, silent voting. Um, People were having debates in the middle of the night. And instead of waking up their neighbors with, you know, shouting and and hollering, they would raise their hands in support or click their fingers in support. Yes. So true. So true. And, Mm. you know, it was, it was, it's beautiful. It's beautiful that people can participate in democracy like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I I was really honored that we got to witness it. Sounds like you got to witness it as well. And where people hear about these demonstrations, it's not it's not the same perception as, as what goes on through the newspaper that we read about. Right. right, right. So what about your your social life? How was that? Well, well let me just ask, was that a, a challenge? Well, it depends how you define challenge. Um, but let me back it up by saying people's perceptions of ambassadors and diplomats is that they lead a life that's constantly going to dinner parties or teas or coffees or balls or things like that. And I'd like to shatter that perception a little bit and instead say most ambassadors and those that are within the Foreign Service work incredibly hard to advance agendas that are germane to both countries. And um, my husband, as ambassador, did that. He worked enormously hard and being very cautious because, you know, if you're entertaining that, it's an expense. The government does not give uh, embassies a lot of expense, a lot of budget to do things like that. So we were very, very Mm -hmm. cautious about entertaining. And so I'm going to answer your question in two different ways. One is what we did through the embassy entertaining, and then two, what was our own private social life like? And at the embassy, when we entertained, we always did it with a strategic purpose. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I we celebrated, we, were, we wanted to promote interfaith efforts. So if it was Ramadan or Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, we would try to bring people together to understand what the two cultures were saying and what these holidays were about, which are remarkably similar. Uh, If there was somebody political, if there was the economic crisis, we'd bring people together to talk about what was going on in financial markets. So our our entertaining was very, very strategic and very, very thoughtful in that way. Now, our social life was, of course, caught up in what this was because we were very, very busy. And it took us a while to make friends. Uh, nobody mm. calls you Susan or Alan when you're the ambassador and the ambassador's wife or partner. They call you Mr. Ambassador, Sir, Embajador. For me, I was Senora or Madam or, uh, you know, Senora Embajadora. And uh, we, I would say to people, please call me Susan. I wanted to be myself, but they weren't. There was a protocol and a formality, and mm-hmm. it took a while to break that down, and to develop friendships that what I would say are long-lasting, friendships that whenever we go back to Spain, we have too many friends that we want to see. 
but we wanted people that would know us as Susan and Alan, people that we could talk to like you would with your friends in any situation. How's your family? What do you think about what's going on in the world? You know, not because you wanted to be close to the ambassador. And mm-hmm. there's one other element I'll mention, and that is that when we left to go to Spain, uh, Alan made three promises to me. One was if we weren't happy, we'd leave. Well, that was sort of a non-starter. Of course, we were going to be happy. <laughs> the second was – I'd like to go out of order. The second is when we returned, we'd have a simple life. And the third was we'd have date night once a week. And we were pretty mm-hmm. – good about having a date night, having time just to ourselves. And in Spain, what's beautiful is the family is so important that on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, Friday night, Saturday and Sunday, most Spaniards are with their families. So it gave us a little opportunity to sort of take a breath and recharge Mm -hmm. our batteries and be with each other. So that was also important to our social life. Good. It's it's also a much slower... Uh, society. And I I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean that, you know, they do take time to enjoy the pleasures of life, right? They go on strolls, they (laughs) walk around, uh, they make time to socialize, they stay up late, uh, they take their time eating. (laughs) Um, Food is important. Food is, you know, also restaurants, you could go anywhere in Spain and find a great restaurant by just walking into one. And Spaniards mm-hmm. are just in these restaurants. They're social. They're talking. They're enjoying a beer, a cerveza, or a glass of vino. And very social, family-oriented, with a real zest for living, for appreciating life, uh, for breathing, smelling the roses, as we would say here. And mm-hmm. you, you saw that. I definitely saw that as well. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> what were some of your, I guess, fondest memories, um, not as part of the U.S. government, but as an individual in Spain, as a person? Uh, you- yes, it's too many for this time we have. You know, we, we got to do, we called them pinch me moments. Um, even in the book, we my first chapter is called From Boston to the Land of Oz. We lived over the rainbow. We, you know, we got to experience things that we never thought we would. We're, you know, you know, whether it even be touring a museum. Uh, I'll give you an example. We went to tour the Sagrada Familia, the church that uh, Antonio Gaudi built in, spent his lifetime building in Barcelona and was not completed uh, when he died. And instead, the architect who studied his plans and, and whose father studied with Antonio Gaudi he was there to finish the construction of this magnificent church in Barcelona. He gave us the tour of what was going on, wow. not just a tour guide or a docent. Uh, you know, that's an experience I'll never forget. Rafa Nadal coming to the embassy to renew his visa to come to the United States and taking the time to speak with, we assembled a small group of embassy employees to take the time and be with everyone and be friendly and no heirs to him. He was wonderful. Uh, there's a part in the book I write about going down to Malaga in the south mm. uh, for Semana Santa, for Holy Week, and having Antonio Banderas be the person standing next to me 
And I will tell you, whispering in my ear, everything <laughs> going on, be still my heart. And then sitting down for a, a lunch with him and having him explain why the, why we're eating certain foods. Torrijos, the, it's like a French toast creme brulee combination, became my favorite dessert. And Antonio Banderas explained the significance of this to me. Uh, you know, those were all wonderful, wonderful moments that, you know, were part of the the privilege of being of serving our country, but I'd also say we went to Rota, where the uh, the U.S. shares a military base with Spain. We mm-hmm. were residents on their property, and seeing the men and women who serve our country, who go every few years to different places. Now, while Spain is a great place to be stationed, they also go into places that are in harm's way, and to get to talk to the to talk to the men and women and. And hear what they're doing and how the, the military has become their career and giving them opportunity in life. Those were wonderful moments as well. Mm. So I, I could go on and I, I could talk to you about walking the streets of Madrid and seeing children going to school and just sort of observing it. That was a wonderful right. moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Th- some of those um, experiences that you recall seem to be, um, a- as you mentioned, uh, because of you know, your position and your husband's position, but those types of magical moments, um, perhaps not with Antonio Banderas, right? <laughs> but uh, those types of magical moments are accessible to to anyone, yeah. right? Walking down the street and, you know, interesting, smart, passionate individuals are everywhere and willing to take the time to to explain things to you and to show you things and to have experiences with. Absolutely. Uh, Mm -hmm. I used to joke, you know, here in this country, we always say to somebody, let's do lunch or let's, I'll meet you for coffee one day and nobody ever calls you. In Spain, when somebody says, let's have lunch, they mean it. They want to have lunch (laughs) with you. They want, people are so real and open and connecting. And, and, and I, you know, I was, I'll mention one other thing. And that is that we traveled extensively through Spain. You name, there are 17 distinct provinces. I'm sorry to say we missed one. We've been to 16 out of 17. And we got to know towns and villages as well as major cities within Spain. We got to observe holidays and fiestas and ferias and, you know, witness what goes on in this country in in an intense and intimate way that was very, very meaningful. There's not one place in Spain, if you said to me, would, if I dropped you on the map tomorrow in this spot, would you be happy? And I'd go, yes, I would be. There's something around mm-hmm. every corner. Mm-hmm. So uh, I lead study abroad programs uh, on a yearly basis. And a few times we we went to Spain, young adults who are interested in seeing the world and traveling the world. Uh, what would you... I guess, recommend to a young traveler to see or do in Spain if they asked you? Well, I first want to find out what they were interested in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where most people take their trips just to Madrid or Barcelona, and nothing is wrong with that. Um, you know, there are different routes that people could take. Uh, you could go south through Andalusia, so places like mm-hmm. you've mentioned earlier, Sevilla or Cordoba 
or Granada. These were places where three cultures existed, the convivencia of of different cultures taking place in Spain, and you'll still see how they coexisted uh, in beautiful, warm, sunny climate and with outdoors and cafes everywhere. You could go down the Costa del Sol and, you know, have a great beach experience and go on the beach and eat in one of the the chiringuitas, these little beachside restaurants where you have paella that's cooked over, you know, an open flame. Uh, You could go up north to uh, Astorius and um, Galicia, you know, where it's green and lush and verdant and, you know, the fish just, as they say, jumps right out of the sea onto your plate or... (laughs) <laughs> you know, you could walk the Camino de Santiago, the Pilgrim's t- Trail there, which, you know, many pilgrims or people do to sort of have their own moments. You could go down to, you could be, watch an olive harvest take place, the picking of olives in one corner. Uh, you know, again, I'm going around the country, Barcelona, go down to Valencia, which I think is one of the most interesting cities in Spain. Uh, there's the old city, and then there's the new city, the Ciudad de Artes y Ciencias, Arts and Sciences. It was designed by Santiago Calatrava. It looks like something mm. out of the Jetsons, if anybody, if any of your listeners remember seeing that cartoon series. Uh, the buildings are extraordinary, and there's an aquarium there and a history museum and an opera palace. And, and actually, I got to know it a little bit better because here in Boston, we have a wonderful college of music, the Berkeley College of Music, mm-hmm. and they have a campus in Valencia. So I would go down and often go to the Berkeley College of Valen- campus in Valencia, and there'd be students performing everywhere. You know, it, it's one of these cities that not everybody goes to their first time. I recommend going there highly. I highly recommend going there. Yeah, I've never been there, and you're oh, you must making me want to go. Your next trip. <laughs> yes, for sure. So you write in the book that uh, travel at its best pushes you beyond yourself. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that idea and and how travel pushed you beyond yourself? Yes, yes. I've always loved traveling. Uh, you know, I my first European trip actually was to Spain. It was when my friends, different era though, my friends were all doing their junior year abroad. And I went to visit a friend in Spain. And uh, she and I spent three months traveling through Europe together where we just would, you know, we'd say, let's stay here a day longer. Let's go here tomorrow. And we'd start to learn about different places in the world and different cultures Going back to Spain, or in 2010 through 2013, when I were, lived there, I got to travel uh, extensively, and it's always eye-opening. You always learn something new, see something new, get stimulated by it. Have your mind think: What was life like here, you know, 500 mm-hmm. years ago? What is life like? Look, look how people have created this culture. And it pushes you to think and to explore and to open up, to be open to what goes beyond our own, you know, I don't, you know, I'm not provincial, but what goes beyond the world I already know. And, uh, you know, I would, I would be in Spain and we'd be talking about things going on in different countries. So to learn about them pushed, pushed me beyond who I was and helped make me, I think, you know, more interesting, more aware of world situations, more aware of culture, more aware of history, 
uh, reading about places, learning through whether it be historical fiction, which I love to read, or real history, you you just mm-hmm. your boundaries are expanded. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That's one of the, I guess, the central tenets to to study abroad, right? Why we as professors and um, travelers often suggest to young adults to spend as much time as they can traveling and seeing the world. Yeah. Um, they won't, they may not have another opportunity to, to do that when they're older. Right. When, when somebody says to you, what's on your bucket list? Nobody says, I want to go to the office tomorrow. <laughs> you know, right. they say, I want to go to <laughs> and name the place, you know, so travel really, it just takes you out of your environment and into something new. And for me, it just makes me open to what every day could bring. In a way, I wish I could live my life every day like that where I live now. I, I try to, but, you know, you're far more stimulated when seeing the world. And it, I, I think learning new cultures, learning about them is just totally rewarding. Mm-hmm. And it helps you, if you spend any significant amount of time abroad, it, it helps you see home in a different light as well. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yes, that is true. Um, I have to say that when we returned home, I uh, I always felt wonderful flying in. You know, on the flight from Madrid to Boston, you leave sort of arid Spain, you know, where you, you feel the heat. <laughs> and you fly mm-hmm. to Boston where things are, if it's nice weather, green and verdant again. And, and there was always a gentleness in arriving back home. But when I first arrived back home, it was in July of 2013, neither Alan or I wanted to do much. We wanted to savor just being in our home Mm. and being in our neighborhood, taking walks with the dog quietly. Uh, You know, so there was a real retreat from the very, very busy and hectic life we led to um, just settling back in. Now, when we return to Spain, I need a vacation from from the vacation because we're so busy seeing <laughs> friends and 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 you you can't tire of going to the Prado or the Reina Sofia Museum or the Thyssen Museum or or walking the streets of Madrid or or going to one of the other small cities, big cities. You know, we we try to do as much as we can, but it's not a vacation. <laughs> it's we're right. we're on the go from the minute we get up to the minute we stop. Right, right, right. I mean, we've I've talked about this on the the show before, right? That's you know one of the differences between traveling and vacation, right? Vacations are empty experiences in, in some ways, and travel and is is work, right? Yeah. It's a, right. You're on the go, right? Yeah. You could take a great vacation and be on the beach for a week, and you know, sit in a chair and read books, and that's great too. Uh, nothing, right. nothing wrong with that. But when you really want to explore, uh, so what I try to do now is we always try to do some exploring and then settle it down (laughs) with a couple of days where we can just be in a small town or village or someplace beachside or mountainside and and savor what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's the way we do it. It doesn't work for everybody. Mm, Yeah, that does that does sound uh, nice, right? (laughs) Uh, we, we we try to tell our uh, our students and and travelers to always make some time for themselves to think and to reflect and to recharge yeah right? recharge the mind and yeah it does that it does that uh, you know I've even changed my attitude about plane rides you can sit there on a plane and just 
you take notes to yourself or read about a place and, and don't look at it as I'm six, eight hours on a plane, I'm trapped. But instead, what, what that time is, that's just the quiet that where you could quiet your mind and mm-hmm. either plan or relive it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, look, uh, we're getting a little bit close to time, um, and I, I wanted to ask you one one final question, and it's um, not necessarily about about the book, but it, it's related in a way because I kept on reading references to the Grateful Dead. <laughs> so I have to ask you about that. My my uh, my father is a deadhead, and when I was a young teenager, he dragged me to my first concert, which was Grateful Dead, and that was when Jerry Garcia was still alive. And at that point in my life, I didn't understand all the funny smells (laughs) and all of that, but it's a very fond memory that I, that I have. And to this day, I still, you know, like listening to the dead because it, you know, transports me back to that time. It lets me think about my father. And I was just wondering, um, if you could talk about your, your love for the dead. (laughs) I'd love to. Thank you. I love that. I love that you went with your father to a concert. Uh, I'm from Brooklyn, New York. In 1970, The Grateful Dead played at a local movie theater in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, It was on a Saturday night, and I went with some friends, and we just got tickets, and we walked right in, and I just had a ball. Um, The music hit me the right way. Uh, Mm -hmm. We danced. The show went on till three, four in the morning. I was in high school at that time. My parents weren't very happy with me, but it became (laughs) a uh, almost 50 year adventure for me of listening to. And I don't want to say, well, I did follow them a little. I lived in San Francisco for a few years. I still have a group of friends we travel with. We travel around and we'll go see shows when they're in the New England or New York area or maybe even Chicago. We went to their Fare Thee Well concerts. And when you read the book, you'll find a lot of lyrics in there. So I describe mm-hmm. even going to Ferran Adria, the famous chef's restaurant, where things are not what they appear. And I, I liken it to the, the, a line from the Grateful Dead song, Scarlet Begonias. The sky was yellow and the sun was blue, <laughs> you know, where things just aren't what they seem for whatever reason. Right. My final chapter in the book is called the Long, What a Long Strange Trip It's Been, because life is a winding road. And we don't know where it takes us. And we had this wonderful, I don't want to say we had a strange experience. We had a marvelous experience. But it really just all summed it up in the Grateful Dead's lyrics. And, of course, my dog, Stella Blue, is named for a Grateful Dead song, the song Stella Blue. So at this part of my life, there's still an important part. I miss Jerry Garcia. I think the band has done great things with John Mayer and uh, Jeff Chimenti mm-hmm. and Othiel Burbridge. So they're, along with the original Grateful Dead of Bob Weir and Bill Crutzman and Mickey Hart, go see them again if you have the chance. <laughs> I recommend I went it. To the, <laughs> Highly. We went to the Dead, the dead and uh, Company, uh, their, their most recent tour and have tickets to go see them again this summer. I guess they're going on another little tour. So maybe we'll, we'll see each other at one of the shows. Hey, Jeremy, <laughs> we'll, we'll do this off the show, but we'll write each other and figure out which ones. Um, they're, it, it's a lot of fun and, you know, the music is great and they're talented musicians and, and mm-hmm. music is an important part of my life. And it's an, actually a theme in the book as well. And I have a Spotify playlist if your listeners want to find it. They can check it okay, by great. Lost well, and Found. <laughs> So, so yeah, on, on that note, where can uh, everybody find you on social media? Well, I have my own website, uh, Susan Solomont, 
www.susansolomon.com. Uh, you can find the book on Amazon. Go into your local bookstores and buy it there. We all want to support our local bookstores. Uh, I have a Facebook page also by my name. If your listeners just Google Susan Solomon, they'll come up with my Facebook page and my Instagram. Uh, find me everywhere. Okay, well, we will do that. And again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking with us. Thank you very much, Jeremy. I appreciate being on the show and great talking with you. Take care now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of All Over the Place. To join in on the conversation, visit the episode show notes and leave a comment. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and follow us on social media. Please subscribe to our newsletter to receive emails with travel-related news, book recommendations, and resources from around the world. Links can be found at alloverthepacepodcast.com. Until next time, farewell. Mm-hmm.